Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of What Gives. I'm really excited to bring you this episode with Grantmakers for Girls of Color. And while we've discussed a ton of topics on women and girls from female social entrepreneurship to period poverty to young girls in sex trafficking, I'm especially excited to dive into the intersection of racial and gender justice today. And joining me is Maheen Kaleem. Vice President of Operations and Programs at Grantmakers for Girls of Color. And I actually met her in April at a retreat for donors of color. And I'm just really excited to have this opportunity for us to talk again. So let's start off with you giving us a um, overview of G4GC's mission and really how you got involved and what really drew you to the mission. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, um... I'll start by saying that Grantmakers for Girls of Color and my role here is truly the most rewarding and amazing thing I've been able to do in my professional and personal life, to be honest, to date. So I feel like it brings so many of those things together. But broadly, our mission is to mobilize um, and amplify resources for movements and organizations that center and are led by girls, femmes, and gender expansive youth of color. And very simply, what that means is that we are both raising money to re-grant and also mobilizing support and helping combat the erasure of girls of color from larger dialogues and investments in racial, gender, and other forms of social justice. It's really our core belief that there is no social justice issue that doesn't uniquely impact girls and gender expansive youth of color and also no social justice movement, whether it's racial justice, gender justice, economic justice, climate justice, when you look at who's actually leading those movements and moving us and envisioning a future that really is embodies all the values that we seek to um, achieve and realize, it's girls and gender expansive youth of color who are usually, whether they're visible or not at the helm of those movements. And so our role at G4GC, which is what we affectionately call Makers for Girls of Color is really to help people see what the role of girls of color is in our communities and in our work to advance equity and justice and help mobilize support for that work. Yeah, and I love that you said every social justice issue or movement impacts girls, femmes, and gender expansive people. And I I love that you said that because it's it is really hard to sometimes nail like when we talk about barriers that women um, and gender expansive people face. And I mean, it's endless barriers and injustices really. Um, But how would you characterize the main barriers today? And how do we, how do we begin to combat that? Like, how do you, I guess, talk generally about those barriers? Yeah, well, so I guess, and I didn't answer the second part of your first question, which was what drew me to G4GC and what drew me to this work. And I would say that, and I'll get to the barriers, but part of what I like to start with is is actually not the barriers. It's actually the role and the power and the joy um, that girls of color in particular bring to our communities and our culture. Um, When we look at the role of young people in the home, And when we look at who's creating the most, um, 
you know, joyful art and cultural content production, who's running TikTok and was creating all those dances that gave people a way to access joy during the pandemic. That was girls and genders. It was black and other girls of color that were doing that, you know, and leading that work. And so for us, it is about centering that before we look at what they're up against, because we know they're up against a lot of stuff. And so I say that because when we think about girls and gender expansive youth of color, it's easy to go to the barriers first, but I think the more beautiful entry point is how do they operate on a day-to-day basis? And then we can think about what they're up against. And, you know, we resourced, um, when we launched, we launched in 2020 as a funder intermediary, so we're only three years old, but uh, we immediately started resourcing, um, we started a COVID-19 response fund for girls and gender expansive youth of color. And we were responding to a lot of different things, whether it was health, access to PPE, access to, you know, um, laptops and other forms of equipment so that organizations could make sure that they could continue virtual programming, you know, paid stipends for young people who had lost their jobs, but organizations were picking up that slack by hiring them as interns or providing cash assistance to families. Um, But one of the other things we resourced was participatory action research Um, by girls of color about how the pandemic was impacting them in their communities. And I think that research really led us to help understand, like, what are all the structural conditions that this pandemic exacerbated or the multiple intersecting pandemics that they were up against? One of them being, of course, and always trauma and and what it means to be living in an intersectional body and having constant kind of reaffirmations of the ways that the world doesn't value you, doesn't protect you, um, and actively creates kind of structural conditions that prevent you from being able to realize what we call a just and liberated future. Um, We saw girls of color having to drop out of school in order to take on more caregiving responsibilities. We saw girls of color, particularly between the ages of 16 and 24, making up a big percentage of the essential workforce, but not always being the base that you think about when you thought about essential workers. You weren't necessarily thinking about a 16-year-old Latina who is living in a household where she's the only person with documentation and therefore the only person that could access work in a really precarious economic moment. Um, So we see all these conditions that are at the intersection of economic injustice, racial injustice. We see over-criminalization of Black and Latina girls. There's a really interesting study that demonstrates by girls' leadership that says that Black and Latina girls are more likely to self-identify as leaders and also more likely to be punished for exhibiting leadership qualities and tendencies. And uh, so I think we're looking at, and then we look at you know who's overrepresented when it comes to gender-based violence. Um, we're talking about Native girls, um, Indigenous girls who are overrepresented not only in being experiencing gender-based violence, um, that is true across the board of girls of color, API girls, black girls, like all of, all of these communities of color are not only impacted disproportionately by different forms of violence, both interpersonal and also state violence, um, they are being targeted by law enforcement, by immigration, um, and we see that um, they are also experiencing forms of gender-based violence within the home. Um, So we see all of those intersecting conditions of injustice impacting girls of color. And what's worse is there is a lack of visibility or an active effort to erase what is happening to them from our public dialogue. So, um, you know, when we talk about initiatives to advance racial equity, 
When we talk about the murder of George Floyd, it was a 17-year-old Black girl who caught that on film. She is the reason that we were able to mobilize, that Black folks and other folks behind them were able to mobilize to advance racial justice in that horrific moment. It is because of her courage um, in that moment. And yet, Black girls continue to be erased um, when we talk about who is actually leading racial and social justice. I, I say that the barriers are the barriers that exist for anyone that is living at the intersections of race, gender, um, economic injustice, and living in communities that are disproportionately impacted by climate injustice and other forms of, of inequity. And there is a lack of visibility um, that is kind of coupled with that. And then the last thing I'll layer on is age, right? The racialized and notions about how girls of color are supposed to act, are supposed to behave, means not only do we not listen to them sometimes, but we actively go out of our way to silence them and push them out of schools and push them into situations where we don't believe them when they tell us that they're being harmed. Um, And so I say all that to say that that's the condition and the context in which they're operating. And then I'm, I'm really excited to talk about all of the ways that in spite of all that, they are able to lead with power and optimism and joy and vulnerability that really sets a model for the rest of us. As you were saying all of it, it just felt like, you know, it's so heavy and there's like so many compounding conditions that a single girl, young girl can face. And it's very hard to imagine like, how are we going to face those barriers. So I know y'all, um, G4GC lives at in the philanthropy world and does a lot of the work and visibility work there, but I would love if you could take it down to the micro level and maybe talk about how the listeners can shift their way of thinking around girls uh, of color and how they can maybe feel empowered to help or the things that they can do in their everyday. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we say at G4GC, we are really proud of the fact that in less than three years, we have raised and regranted about $25 million to over 370 organizations in all 50 states, Guam and Puerto Rico. And the all 50 states and the surrounding territories was very important to us because we wanted people to understand that in your community, in your state, in your city, in your county, in rural areas, there is an organization that is led by women and femmes and girls of color that is doing this work. It might not look the same. It absolutely does not look the same everywhere because local conditions matter a lot. But one of the main things that I encourage folks to do is find out who is holding space, who is creating, where are the space? Like, just start with this question. Like, Where are the spaces where Black, Native, and other girls of color exist in proximity to me, in physical proximity to me? Where are they? What are the conditions of the communities that they're in? If you know that a school is is disproportionately um, a certain community of color, what are the conditions of that school? Is there something that you could do to improve the material conditions of those individual young people? Um, What we always say is, if you don't know who those organizations are, contact G4GC. We will tell you. And if we don't know, we will tell you who you can ask to find them. Because for us, I think that's the initial thing. We really believe in people being personally connected and mobilized. 
So that's one kind of set of action steps is just find out where they are. What are the conditions that they live under? Who are the organizations that are doing that work and what can I do to support them? Whether it's monthly donation, whether it's volunteering time, whether it's just giving them some love on social media so that they know that they're seen. I can't tell you, there was an organization that I've known for a really long time and I just love their work because they work with Muslim queer youth and I was just so excited that they existed because I have um, relatives and friends who really struggled to find community and I and they were just so grateful that somebody that was that like saw them literally and liked their stuff on social media all the time and they were like who is this person so I mean, I, I do think folks should do more than that. I think that each of us has a personal power, whether it's social, financial, political, whatever it is, and you should use it. But I would say start there. And then the second kind of thing I would encourage folks to do is listen. Listen to girls and gender expansive youth of color. If you are on the street and somebody approaches you or you're overhearing a conversation. You know, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time, and I would watch how people on the metro would react to a group of young people, particularly young Black students who would come onto the train. And there was this immediate, for folks that were not Black often, particularly on certain sides of of, of D.C., right, um, certain train lines, people would have a really negative reaction to them in a way where they didn't want them to be loud or they felt like they were doing too much or taking up too much physical space on the train that is public transportation. I think one thing folks can do is like gut check, what is that reaction about? What am I, why am I having such a negative reaction? And what are they saying that's bothering me? Because if you actually listen, it's play, it's joking, it's laughter, which is something that all of us need more of. and yet there is an immediate reaction, particularly to Black and other youth of color, that um, immediately assumes that what they're engaged in is not appropriate. So there's an internal check. Um, and then the third thing I would say is if you have girls of color in your life, gender expansive youth of color, femmes of color in your life, spend time listening to them. Understand, not in a tokenizing way, don't interrogate them about their experiences, but when they tell you something about the reality of their life, listen to it and think about what that really means and let them know they are seen and heard Um, because that can go a very long way in the life of a young person. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for that. And now I kind of want to flip the script a little bit and talk about grant makers for girls of color. Um, And you touched on this earlier, but I want to dive a little deeper into the theory of impact or change there. And I know it seems obvious, but why the explicit focus on girls, femmes, gender expansive youth of color? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I will start there and then go back to our theory of impact. The why is because we were asked to. So G4GC's origin story is that we were originally a funder learning community that really emerged around 2014 because there was all of this amazing movement that was happening, particularly by um, Black and other women of color who were leading organizations and wanting to call on philanthropy to mobilize resources in support of them. It was around the time that there was a lot of discussion in philanthropy about resourcing men and boys of color. And the response when folks were asking for, what about girls, what about gender expansive youth? From some people was great and from other people, to be honest, was not. Um, 
there was an assumption that the conditions girls of color were experiencing were not as dire as boys of color. There was this like weird pitting against, there was a binary for sure that was being emphasized. And there was, they were pointing to, well, there's no research, which um, was untrue. There was a lot of research. It was being produced by Black and other women of color. So it wasn't getting recognized in the same way. And I, I share all that to say that when we became an intermediary, you know, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we were really charged with how do we, as a new organization in this iteration of what we were, we transitioned from a funder learning community, again, respond to this moment because we had done all this research with young people, with organizational leaders, with people in philanthropy to understand the disconnects. And one of the main things that came out of that was that there was no philanthropic home where funders, young people, and organizational leaders, executive directors, and other folks on staff could come together to say, we are part of a collective movement that is invested in, like I said, what we call just and liberated futures for girls and gender expansive youth of color. And so our call was really that we needed to hold that space. It allowed for us to hold that space and be really explicit so that we could be in community with other people who have an intersectional framework, but also many other areas of focus um, and be a place where people could come and young people could see themselves in our work. That was something that was really important to us from the beginning was we want girls and gender expansive youth of color to come to our website, to come to our office, to look at what we're doing, to look at our social media and see themselves in it and know that this is a space where they are not only seen, but they are also valued so much that we're trying to get other people to invest in them. Like that's how much we see your value in the world and we will advocate for it. So when we were developing our theory of impact, it was co-created with young people then. So we actually started with a youth advisory counseling design team that spent the first year and a half of our existence in this form with us, really telling us this is where young people should have power. This is where you as adults should just do your job and let us have fun. Um, this is where we want to have advisory capacity. This is how you reach me and my peers. This is the language you should use. And one of the things that they talk to us about, and this very much informs our theory of impact, is our work is to build a tree of support for them, to plant very strong roots that live for generations to come, that have many different branches and can bear many different leaves or fruits or whatever is coming out of those. So you'll see that image of a tree reflected a lot in our imagery. Um, it's all over our office. It is because we are really rooted in building this tree of support for them. The other piece of our theory of impact that feels important to share is that we like to practice what Monique, our president, often calls not your granddaddy's philanthropy, but your grandmother's philanthropy. That we really root our practices in what we call reciprocity as praxis, which is the idea that we know, like I was sharing my own origin story with Chief for GC, that we have always got us, that we always take care of each other. I came to G for GC at a particularly vulnerable moment in my professional life, and I was held by mentors of mine who knew that I would hold young people. Um, and so for us, so much of our theory of impact is about embodying this reciprocity and operationalizing it. So what we pour into our grantees, they pour into us. What we pour into our co-investors or funders, 
they absolutely pour into us. And the idea that the ways that we move in our philanthropic practice are actually rooted in the ways our communities have always taken care of each other, that they are rooted in relationship, that they're rooted in cultural practice, that they're rooted in um, the evidence is that our communities have survived and that's all the evidence we need, that they are not transactional in nature, and that they are rooted in a collective, that so much of what we do is participatory and collective and communal because we know as women and femmes and gender expansive people of color that that is the only way our communities survive. And that's just a natural way that we tend to operate. We care for each other. And that's how we like to show up um, with anybody that we kind of touch and engage with is um, we are welcoming you into our home. We we believe in food. We believe in music and culture and art and uh, spirituality and all of these things that we know have sustained our ancestors and will continue to sustain our young people and their ancestors. There's like a million things I want to dive into while you're speaking, like ancestral knowledge and reciprocity, operationalizing that. That's a that's a whole other episode. Um, but something that really stood out to me um, while you were speaking was co-designing with the youth. So I would love if you can go a little bit into that and how you meet and work with the community of youth that you do work with. Yeah, I... I love talking about our youth engagement work. Our staff, um, particularly Kindle Oshibudu and Cedra Sebastian and Rana Lapine and Nar Suha have really been at the helm of operationalizing that. So I want to name them um, and their brilliance in this conversation. I think the, the things I would say is that we always start with who is the community that this young person is surrounded by, right? So we don't do anything without partnership with our grantee partners. When we refer to the young people that are engaged in the programming that G4GC offers for young people, there are young people who come from our grantee community. And part of that is because we are hoping that our grantee partners trust us to be an extension of the village they're already creating. Um, and that this is just another opportunity that their amazing organizations have are able to offer to young people. So that is also important because it also allows for our grantees to kind of engage their young people as ambassadors and stewards for the organizations. And these young people come in and they're so devoted to the organizations that they come from because those organizations have held space for them. And because of that, they're really excited to think about what is it that this philanthropy thing is. So what that has actually looked like is with our Youth Advisory uh, Design Council, we literally just convene them on a monthly basis, sometimes more than once a month. They engage in conversations about what does philanthropy mean to you? What does it look like in your home and community? And to that point, I would say like an example of the reciprocity as practices, I remember this one young person um, who is Chinese saying, well, in my home, whenever anybody comes from China, it doesn't matter like who they are, who their family is, whether we're related or not, they stay at our house. And whenever an elder is sick in the community, we make food and we go over there and we house people and we feed people and we take care of people when they're sick. And that is what it looks like in our community. 
And that felt really resonant um, for a lot of the other young people. It felt really resonant for our staff. So part of it is starting with that so that they can locate philanthropy within their own homes and their own bodies and their own families and communities. And then we end up talking about, well, what does it mean? What is this thing that we're doing at G4GC? What are we trying to do? So part of the other piece that I'll say in terms of the operationalizing part, they're paid. We always pay our young people. We make sure, and and that looks, I mean, there, there are mechanics to that, right? So like, I think, you know, a lot of folks have a desire to engage young people in meaningful ways. I think it's important for folks to remember that that requires infrastructure. It require, requires staff time. So those are some of the pieces to the operationalizing. We have structured it in a couple of different ways. Usually it's, you know, engagements that are anywhere from eight weeks to a year to, in the case of the advisory council, a year and a half. And then they split into committees. The advisory council, some people really wanted to focus on our communications and our branding. And we had a group of young people that were really interested in grant making, and they ended up being the core of our first participatory round of grant making through the Black Girl Freedom Fund. Um, We had young people who were really interested in, um, in policy and infrastructure for an organization. So they were able to kind of play to their strengths, learn about what they wanted, cross-pollinate their learnings with each other, and also most importantly, bring this information back to their organization. So part of it is about engaging them as stewards who will take this information back to their communities and share it with their communities. And I think for me, the biggest moment of like success around that was I remember walking into a room a year after we had launched this youth advisory committee and design team. We brought them together with some young people who were engaged in our Black Girl Freedom Fund Youth Grant Making Council and a few other young people that had touched different parts of our work. And they were in a kind of four-day retreat. And I walked into the room and with Monique, our, our CEO, and there were just pages and pages of flip charts all over the room, like old school organizing flip charts. And they had all of these visions of what G4GC should become. And they didn't know who Monique and I were. And for me, that was like the greatest indicator of success because they felt so much ownership over this organization and this entity and this philanthropic home. And the last thing I'll say is, in every opportunity where we engage young people, we have a healer, a healing practitioner who is attached to that work, who is outside of our staff, who is a consultant, who is trained in kind of culturally specific, depending on which community it is that we're engaging, ways of healing. Because we know that the work to steward resources is not easy. Movement work is not easy, and many of these young people come from that work and are in it and are living it each day. And so it felt really important to ensure that we had that support for their well-being that lived outside of anything that we were extracting from. We didn't want it to be an extractive process. We wanted it to be a process where at the end of it, they felt whole and they felt proud and they felt excited to take whatever information they were learning and share it back so that it wasn't a one-way exchange. That's incredible. And I absolutely admire the way the organization just centers and empowers young people. And I think when you're describing just how you put together this process, it's so mindful. In a lot of organizations, it's 
easy when, especially if you're a nonprofit and you're not as resourced as you feel that you should be, it's hard to take on that mindfulness of like the cultures of the people that you're working with and like all the conditions that they're living in. But when I was going to your website, I just saw the word abundant everywhere. And I think that abundant mindset that um, I can really see it in the way you're describing how you operationalize this whole thing. But I did want to just take a moment before we continue to plug where people can find grant makers for girls of color and um, to reiterate any call to actions just for us to, you know, be grounded in those. Yeah, thank you so much. So you can find us at www.grantmakersforgirlsofcolor.org. You can also find us on all the socials at G4GC underscore org is where we're at on Twitter and social media. Um, uh, sorry, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and the other, so the calls to action would be, one is fund organizations that resource and center girls and gender expansive youth of color. You can fund them by funding us because we get the money back out to them, or you can find out who those organizations are and directly fund them. If you do directly fund, we would love to know about it. So reach out to us and tell us how you're giving, who you're giving to, what organizations you love, because we love to learn about them. Even if we can't directly resource them, we want to make sure that they're visible to other funders. Um, so that's one call to action. The second call to action is more specific. We launched a campaign in 2020 called the One Billion for Black Girls campaign. It is a campaign to mobilize a billion dollar investment in black girls and gender expansive youth by the year 2030. So what we mean by mobilize is not that we will raise that entire billion dollars by ourselves, but instead that we will inspire that kind of investment. So if you have interest or capacity, you can visit onebillionforblackgirls.org. You can reach out to us more directly through either of those websites or on social media. Um, and again, if you are giving to organizations that center and are led by Black girls, please reach out to us. We would love to know. We're trying to collect data on what funding currently exists. And please stay tuned and follow us because we'll be launching some broader efforts to really learn about where those investments are going and, and how they can be going. Um, but... You know, and then the final call to action is always an invitation to think about the girls of color in your communities, regardless of who they are, whatever that. And, and when we say girls and gender expansive youth of color, we invite people to be really specific about what communities we're talking about in, in that context. But think about the people in your own life and think about if there are ways that you can make some immediate impact on, on young people's lives in your own community. Awesome. And Maheen, I had the wonderful chance to hear you speak in April and more on this episode. And I already know you have so much wisdom to share and you've shared so much already, but I would love if you could share something for the listeners to take with them as we reflect on this work and this conversation. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm really in this I'm in this moment, so I, I recently had the opportunity to speak at my high school's commencement. And one of the things that I loved was that the class described themselves as silly. And so I've really been sitting with this idea of silliness and playfulness and joy. And I guess my, my tidbit 
of wisdom that I learn from the young people in my own life and in our work is that silliness and joy is extremely precious. And I would really encourage folks to figure out ways to protect your joy, protect your peace. And it might take a little work, but do what you can to access silliness on a regular basis. Um, it's so important in this very intense time that we live in uh, that can feel so inundated and heavy. And I really think that joy and silliness is like the great protective factor against all of that. Yeah, I love that. So Mahin, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I'm really grateful you're in my network and that we can call on each other as we do racial justice work, because that's the space that we share, but also for sharing your knowledge today. Um, I'm just incredibly grateful to know you and really, really grateful for this conversation. Likewise, thank you so much. And for holding this space, it's such a cool, authentic, generous way to mobilize and move people. And I'm just really grateful to be in, in the What Gives community. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your community. For more information, head over to our website at thewhatgivesproject.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.